Hey everyone, a big welcome to the Forge Ahead Show, hosted by me, Nick Elston, inspirational speaker, creator of unique mental health engagement strategies, a transformational speaking coach, and a mentor to have in your corner. The Forge Ahead Show brings you the storytellers, the influencers, the people who have gone from adversity to excitement, forging something better, something beautiful, something powerful. So stay tuned dive in and be inspired by today's very special guest. Hey everyone and a big welcome back to the Forge Ahead Show season two episode 15. Oh, time's flying by coming thick and fast every week and I've got another amazing guest bringing my good friend Miss Martha Lawton. Hello, nice to see you. Hey. Really excited about this one because you have like, you know when people say they have a book in them, then you've probably got a library. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe, maybe. (laughs) I'm such a lazy author though. (laughs) (laughs) So give us a kind of a, I don't know, like a game show overview. Who are you from? What do you do? That kind of thing. Okay. So who am I? Who am I from? I'm. Um, who am I from? That's a whole different question. That is we, a different question. Yes. We could go with parentage if you want. That could get well, awkward for some, but. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, no, I don't think it is. I'm pretty, pretty clearly <laughs> the product of who who they say I am from. Um, and we'll come on to that as well. <laughs> yeah. So, so I. Who am I now? <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. I'm a financial educator, certified money coach, not of the woo-woo manifesting type of the, hey, let's talk about whether the way you're acting and the things that you believe are holding you back in terms of reaching your financial goals and how we can, uh, you know, change how you're framing things um, and find some ways to kind of build better habits and, and rearrange your life a little bit so that you are happier in your relationship with money and achieving more. Mm. That stuff I do. I do uh, a podcast on the topic of the emotional side of money, uh, which is called Squanderlust. What a um, name. Uh, yeah. amazing name for a podcast. Thank you it's so really much. Cool. It's, uh, it's really about, um, there are so many podcasts that are like, uh, be rich tomorrow or like, <laughs> uh make amazing money today like they're very very super aspirational and they're all about like achieving your perfect achieving sort of perfect financial bliss by by um just extreme willpower and uh, <laughs> so maybe the same approach that links frugality. takes advertising or Viagra or something like that. Those kind yeah. of places. That's kind yeah. of where they go with it. Yeah. There's a there's a lot of that and then there's a lot of kind of quite like sensible money stuff that's like just uh understand finances here are some numbers and terms and conditions um and i I sound like i'm really slagging off all my all my fellow people in the money blogging and and i'm not you people create incredible content and you do wonderful things but your niche is not my niche and Mm. my niche is the people who are afraid who are ashamed who are uncertain confused and who mm. feel like they're possessed by a squanderlust demon you know <laughs> feel like something in themselves is causing them to fail at money where you know maybe other parts of their lives go great 
mm. right? Are they competent and professional and, um, or, or, you know, not professional, like they, they are incredible friends, incredible mm. family members. They, they have an area, at least one area of competence. Mm. you know in in their rest of their lives but money is kind of the thing that they're not good at and that is upsetting and difficult for them um and it when we it, because back then I was working with a co-host when we chose that name it was really about kind of understanding that there is this part of yourself or that can be this part of yourself that feels very out of control yeah. around money and we wanted to convey that and then say like look that is really normal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, come on to normal too. There's a whole yeah. different subject. Yeah, but yeah, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. You know what? You're quite right. I think, like you said, uh, I mean, you, you needn't. But that kind of apology. Oh, sorry for. It, it, I think it's about the tribe that you've built, and and the tribe that you've built will be very different to anybody else's. It's the same with with me in the mental health space. That mm. there are going to be people that are more maybe traditional solution focused, and that's great because. As you say, everyone has their place in the food chain stuff. Mm. But we need to get good with that. I think we need to get good with the fact that look, not everyone's going to really buy into us. And what works coming from your lips may not work from coming from somebody else's lips and vice versa. But the people that really get you will really get you. Because the one thing you're very, very good at is showing vulnerability and authenticity in what has to be said is one of the last bastions of traditional business in its truest mm. sense. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, so you will have those extremes within that people that are really rebelling against the system kind of thing. And and you yeah. kind of, I think for me, you kind of, as an outsider looking into your industry, you kind of, you bridge that gap between the two. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, that's Absolutely. a really kind of powerful place to be because people need to be handheld sometimes through big periods of change. Yeah, I, I hope so. I hope so. That's, that's really lovely to hear. Yeah, so I, I've had a sneak preview of your upcoming <laughs> talk. I mean, by the time this actually goes out, we're recording this as it stands in May. I think it's May. My my yeah. head's a bit frazzled today. <laughs> <laughs> uh, last week, Mental Health Awareness Week, 28 engagements in five days. I'm entitled to be frazzled today. It's oh, yeah. You're, you're <laughs> entitled to be horizontal. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, the, that was the other option. But I don't want to let you down or let me down. To the, <laughs> anyway, uh, but the, when this goes out, you will have delivered this talk. Now, you're speaking yeah. and sharing a virtual stage alongside people like Ruby Wax talking about that kind of what it means to be normal or who wants to be normal as you've asked your audience yeah what does that mean what does that look like tell our audience about it because actually in the mental health arena normal is one of those terms that just Mm. seems what's very subjective anyway but it seems kind of unattainable because we put a different value on normal what does that look like for you yeah so i mean you've just summarized some of the early points of my talk there that normal's incredibly subjective right we we and i think there's this is a lot of this is about media consensus right there's a sort of a version of normal uh that's portrayed to us um as being the it's not even aspirational actually it's the person you sort of should be but it's not even necessarily aspirational um, it's just a kind of this is this is normal. This box is normal. You're either within it or without it. Um, if you're within it, you belong. Um, and if you're outside, you should be attempting to be inside because your status in our society is at risk. So it's very much Some a societal level. kind of framework that uh, you either are something or not something. It takes yeah. away that period of grey, maybe, between the black and white? 
Yeah, I think I think so. That's that's sort of how I see. It. I see normal as being a kind of um, like having the outward markers of fitting into your group. Yeah. But then, so that's the sort of societal level. I think there are lots of layers of normal, right? So um, I think there's, you have your normal for for just you, by yourself in your home when nobody can see you, you have what you normally do. And you get to create that normal completely, right? That's mm-hmm. that's the bit that's completely in your control. That's That's just yours. And then you have normal for your household, which is like, how do you and the people you live with, assuming you do live with other people, how do you navigate your day-to-day lives together? What does no- what what do you see as normal? And and that will involve some compromise, right? Um, you have to create a normal together, yeah. Um, and that'll be based on your perceptions between between you. Um, and then you'll have kind of your immediate community. What do they perceive as normal? And there'll be again some compromise between what you want to do. And as an individual, and then what helps you to fit into that community? And there can be some tension there again, you know, and you have to work that out about how much do I want to put effort into seeming normal within this community in order to fit in versus how much um, do I want to just express myself Mm. and be just express my preferences, my tastes, my... um, uh, you know, my creativity, uh, my needs and wants, even quite sort of basic seeming needs and wants can sometimes mm. go against a normal. Yeah. Um, and and listen, I mean, that applies personally and professionally as well then, mm, doesn't it? Because Totally, totally. It's kind of culture-led. Yeah. It, yeah. it can actually potentially be a limiting belief that, um, or a sure. certainly conditioning element where yeah. to, to yeah, achieve yeah, yeah, yeah. normal. But that's an interesting... <laughs> as regular kind of subscribers of a show know that I go off down rabbit holes and I'm really, really worried <laughs> about this one because I know that we go off down rabbit holes left, right and centre when we're not being recorded, that level when yeah. we're not being recorded. So I'm trying to be as focused as possible. However, yeah. Yeah. That, that definition of normal, and thank you so much for kind of delivering that with so much clarity, that means that people that try to rebel against the norm or, mm. or kind of aspire to the norm, they're actually not aspiring to a fixed point, are they? No, no, no. So so it becomes like a a spun version of the truth all the way through. (laughs) Yeah, totally, totally. And and one of the interesting things is you'll have different norms in different social environments, right? What's normal for you at work will be different from what's normal from your home versus if you're a member of a club or society or you play sports in a team or something, there'll be what's normal in that group, right? The more similar the people are in your different normal groups, yeah. Um, uh, the more overlap there is and the smaller they are, um, the, the more consistent you can be in those different environments and still always fit in. So yeah. you'll find people who are um, who will say and they mean it. I'm the same everywhere I go. I don't change. Um, and quite often, sometimes it's because they're just incredibly secure and they just take me or leave me and I am who I am. right um and they don't they don't adapt and that's you know kudos to those people but also you get you will often find that the people who say i'm exactly the same whoever i'm with there's a lot of overlap a lot of cultural overlap and a lot of um just just literally the exact same people being in the groups all the time um between all the different environments they're in 
Yes. So they don't have to adapt or change because the norms are very similar because the people are very similar in all the different groups they're in. If that. you go to somewhere, if you have somebody who's in a much bigger social circle or who um, works in quite a different environment from where they live um, and then, you know, maybe as a member of some other community in their social life, that's again quite different. Those people will adapt a lot more. Um, yeah. And they'll change a lot more and they'll relate a lot more to this idea of there being different kinds of normal and different groups to be in and how people can be flexible. Um, so the power of normal then is, is the meaning that we attribute to it, I guess. A lot of the time, some of it, some of it is, there's also a literal material benefit a lot of the time to being okay. or seeming normal. And I think it's really, really important that we acknowledge that. Um, coming back to my you know, financial education yeah, hat here, let's put that on. Um, you know, being accepted by the group you're in has material benefits, right? Yeah, um, that's quite primal as well, isn't it? Right, yeah, yeah. so we, your, your tribe, who are your tribe, right? Yeah. Um, and we, again, in our kind of slightly atomized nuclear family, living miles and miles away from your people kind of, lives that we have now we're maybe less aware of that sometimes but yeah. there are material benefits to belonging yeah who will who will put you up for the night if your um if your house burns down right <laughs> who will yeah. put you up for the night um who would drive you to the hospital uh to see a relative if you're if you didn't have another way of transporting yourself um, who will lend you literally anything from a cup of sugar to a book to their, you know, a vehicle to a, a place to stay? You know, the, that yeah. stuff is very, it's very tribal, right? And it's about fitting in. Yeah. So um, there is a real material benefit to being seen to belong, right? Yeah. And so, and that can be about seeming normal. Or it can be about having connection with people. And you don't necessarily always have to seem completely normal to build connection. But you have to connect more one-on-one -on -one with people if yeah. you're not going to meet norms, right? Yeah, I get if, that. I mean, yeah. So, so I guess over the, over the past 14 months, and as it stands right here today, mm. over this kind of period of pandemic and lockdown, I think one of the phrases alongside unprecedented and furlough which are just words that didn't really exist <laughs> in my vocabulary before was this kind of new normal so yeah I guess if normal is a subjective term anyway the new normal is kind of like a paradox but um yeah. how yeah, has yeah. kind of normal looked for you personally over the past kind of 14 months how has life changed for you um I've been I'm one of these people who's been working a lot more rather than rather than less so while some people have been on fellow or or have lost work you know in the sphere of people you know people found their financial situations changed um and when your financial situation changes you turn to others for information about what you do and and for advice about that and so trying to um yeah i, I so i have freelance clients that don't necessarily show up on my social media <laughs> with regards to the podcast and my blog and things like that. So um, I've been doing a lot of work in the background with freelance clients um, around kind of creating content for them, creating learning 
materials for them to help people to navigate their financial situation as it changes. Um, and so that's been, I think I've just been holed up in the room that I'm in right now. My husband says, mm. you know, I'm just always in here and I'm not out in in the world. Um, so this has been my sort of, my, my space really, it's, it's become very limited. Um, but I've just been kind of at my computer furiously mm. uh, typing and researching for, for months on end. It's been, it's been very challenging, um, but less challenging than for a lot of other people, I think. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm lucky and I'm very, very grateful for it. I'm extremely grateful for it. Yeah, I absolutely get that. I think certainly there's a, there's an element of that perspective element. Well, who am I to feel this way when other people got so much else going on mm. uh, over the past kind of 14 months that I have delivered now five talks to the NHS mm. and then on the absolute flip side to local residential homes and everywhere mm. in between. Yeah. One thing I found is actually that essentially if something is causing you pain or frustration and you've got absolutely right to own that and to, and to help yourself. And, um, and, and thank you so much for sharing that because everyone had, I mean, like I said, I'm, I'm very much open about this kind of uh, Corona coaster as I've heard it called, um, that over the past year, literally I've been at my lowest for a long time. Mm. And on the flip side, there's been a lot of good things to come from this as well. Yeah. Um, so it's not all bad in that sense, but thank you for sharing that. Yeah, um, yeah. I also think, and <laughs> talking about normal again, that mm. that kind of stay home, save lives thing that had to be put in place to safeguard us um, will and has formed this conditioning belief for a lot of people that inside is safe and outside isn't safe. Yeah. So as we step out into the light of the brave new world, and hopefully by the time this goes out in July, we're going to be a lot more okay. Well, that will be in a good place. Yeah. <laughs> then we may be along the way of kind of addressing that. But that, is, that does have an impact, doesn't it? Oh, and massively, yeah. Certainly yeah. with yeah. finances, financial well-being and mental health, that kind of stuff, that, that money and, and mental health is huge. So oh, if people yeah. have had a financial experiences that have not been great over the past 14 months, that will affect the decisions they make here on in, wouldn't it? Absolutely, absolutely. And I think one of the things that's a real challenge, when you suddenly have to cut right back on your spending, um and if you suddenly have to if you go from being kind of relatively mindless about your spending because you've always got enough to you know really having to watch every penny and yeah. and being very concerned about that the temptation can be to be over frugal to the point of never allowing yourself or your household um any kind of treats or nice things at all and i'm not saying be be frivolous because you're going to assume the good times will be back someday because that again is also really risky but um you know don't ever make a spending plan or a budget that is that is so tight that there's no fun in there at all because you cannot stick to that and you will get a kind of purge and splurge mm. as i call it uh <laughs> sort of nice. shuttling i yeah. can see that on a t-shirt for some reason <laughs> <laughs> or like a stress ball these <laughs> give yeah. away at conferences and things. <laughs> I like that. Merch cool. Merchandising tips from uh, from Nick Elston. Yeah, yeah. Merch, um, all about the merch. Um, yeah, yeah. So, and the one thing I did want to touch on is okay with you mm. because I've had the pleasure of hearing kind of like your backstory. You've had so mm. many kind of uh, fascinating experiences, uh, <laughs> and I guess starting with the parents that we mentioned right yeah, at the beginning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, 
So tell us about kind of Little Martha Lawton, where you came oh. from, and, and also how, how far it took you afield, because you, you lived and worked in Japan for quite a while as well, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. So Little Martha, um, let's see how, how much Little Martha matches up with, with grown-up Martha now. <laughs> okay, so Little Martha was um, very shy, very quiet, uh incredibly nerdy basically um uh by the time i would say i was sort of into my mid-teens um i was really a very awkward very nervous very nerdy child um and a lot of that came about because of uh where i grew up where i did not fit normal (laughs) very well um so i grew up in a tiny tiny little village in rural oxfordshire um there were 60 children in my primary school um in two classes uh and my parents were from london and they were both yoga teachers and back then in the 1980s yoga was not what it is today right yoga nowadays is kind of what mummies do to stay yummy (laughs) (laughs) um yoga in the 1980s was like weird heathen ungodly practice uh people who do yoga probably into hallucinogens and free love and that kind of thing um and and my parents were into growing their own vegetables and diy and (laughs) baking and things like really really the most wholesome people um very they were much more the like mm, lentils and crafts end of the <laughs> yoga spectrum yeah. rather than the sex cult end of the <laughs> yoga spectrum. Um, I love that spectrum. I may use that for other things in life and business, <laughs> the, the sex cult spectrum. <laughs> so, um, but, you know, our, our neighbours were a bit suspicious, I think, of, of them and of us. And some of that rubbed off on me. And my parents did have some different kind of beliefs about how they wanted us raised, my sister and I, and those didn't necessarily fit in with our village and with our village school, which was a Church of England primary school. And we had at least one really quite religious teacher who, again, was probably a bit suspicious of my folks um, because, you know, yoga, Hindu, Buddhism, etc., um and uh it was difficult it was difficult Mm. um you know kids can be really cruel and absolutely when you are the weird kid out of 60 kids you're the weird kid right you're not a weird kid you're the weird kid I, i was very very alone for a lot of my childhood uh and unfortunately even when i got into secondary school and there were 800 children from across multiple villages you know some of it stuck I would say Mm. um and I habitually still expected people to treat me the way I'd been treated previously and so I was very defensive and very shy and awkward um but also you know the same children were there um in in my cohort and would say things to other children about me that weren't necessarily true uh and so it was very difficult for me to 
find a place. You know, I, I did find other geeky, weird kids who'd been the weird kid in their village to hang <laughs> out with. Um, but ultimately, you know, it was it was really tough. It was honestly yeah. really tough. And it, it wore me down a lot. And I had very, very low self-esteem. I was very depressed a lot. Um, and it was only when I was 16, just before I was 16, uh, the summer before my GCSE year, um, that for reasons we won't go into, it was, uh, my parents were, um, there was some, some stuff. My parents were married. It was not a problem, a marital problem with my parents, but there was a, there was some stuff at home. Mm -hmm. Um, and it was, my parents decided that the easiest way to cope was for them to be together and focus on supporting each other. Um, and for my sister and I to go for a week to these summer holidays, sort of activity camp places. Okay. And so we, we each chose one of these camps and we went to different ones and I, went and hung out for a week with a bunch of people from all over the country that I'd never met before. And suddenly that reputation that had been with me since I was eight years old. Yeah. Was evaporated. Like it, it, yeah. it just wasn't there. I was able to make a completely fresh start with these people. And I came in very determined that I was going to have as good time as possible. And I was going to be friendly and like try and enjoy this summer camp because there was lots of cool stuff to do. And I was quite excited to do it. And suddenly I was having a great time making friends. Wow, and amazing. I realized that all of these beliefs that I'd held about myself as being this unlikable, unattractive, um, like, just just undesirable person um was just just nonsense it was context and it was other people's viewpoints that were kind of a combination of being very outdated but also just probably fundamentally flawed in the first place and that if I went to somewhere new with new people I could recreate myself or express myself in a new way that I never had done and that the person I could be in this new context could have friends. Um, I even met my first boyfriend on that summer camp, uh, had my first kiss. Um, you know, it, it was it was a whole different thing. And that gave me the confidence to change schools for sixth form. So I did my, did my GCSE year at the same old school, but I now had this kind of thing to sustain me yeah. um, through my GCSE year. And when I got out of GCSEs, I changed schools for sixth form and just reinvented myself. And I kind of exploded, right? For after all these years of, mm, of acting imagine. closed in and introverted and defensive all of this time, I, I just kind of went, hey, I'm going to have all the opinions. I'm going to wear the brightest, most loud clothes you've ever seen. Take I think me I remember leaving. Big Bang. That's how it looks like. Yeah. Boom. <laughs> so Boom. you were there. Yeah. Completely. <laughs> Completely. 
Um, and I can't say that always worked for me. <laughs> but I mean, if you're going to oh, do that, <laughs> <We've all been laughs> <there. laughs> if you're going to do that, 1718 is a great year to do that, right? <laughs> yeah, it was, exactly, yeah. yeah, you you get a free pass on a lot of nonsense when you're that age. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I just kind of exploded. Um, and I did have friends and I did have a good time and I got my A-levels and that was good. Uh, and then I went to university and it kind of continued, but without parental supervision. So suddenly there was alcohol involved um, and uh, I was trying to manage my own money and not particularly successfully at that. Um, uh, yeah. And, and so I sort of I sort of expanded and expanded, I think, over the following years. And I've skipped out my first trip to Japan, but that was also um, an incredibly uh, formative, I guess, experience. Mm. Um, and I think the confidence to go out in the world and go to Japan came in part from from that sort of initial experience, that real pivoting point, I guess, in my life of, yeah. of going to this camp and when I was 15. Uh, so what, what first took you to Japan? <laughs> um, was it literally the furthest place you could find away from where you were at the time? Was it... <laughs> You know what? My sister has joked that she was like, I, I think often about the fact that you left home by going to the other side of the globe. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Not going to Wales for a week or nothing wrong with Wales, by the way, for my Welsh audience. But yeah, yeah no, I mean, you know, yeah. Wales is Beautiful lovely. Place. However, yeah, Japan is a lot further away. Japan is a lot further away. Um, yeah. So why Japan? Uh, so I really wanted to do a gap year project and travel. Um, I, I saw that as an opportunity that again, would never, probably never come again, you know, an mm -hmm. opportunity to do something really exciting and different in my life. And I applied to this organization called Gap Activities Projects. Um, and they had, they sent me this booklet with all the different countries that you could apply to go to. And they said, pick five. Um, and so I picked... Vietnam, South Africa, Romania, um, and Hungary, maybe somewhere else in Eastern Europe, definitely. Um, and then I needed a fifth country. And so you picked up a dart. <laughs> <laughs> well, so I at that point, Japan was not really a tourist destination at all. And um my impression of japan was that it was this place that you only went to if you went there on business or if you uh were studying japan and japanese specifically yeah. uh and so i thought i may never have another opportunity to go to japan japan might be this country that i never go to unless i put it on my list here and so it hadn't been on my kind of initial radar at all um but it just kind of i just thought you know what, I, this might be my one chance to go to Japan and let's, let's put it in there. And then somebody told me, I don't even know where on the grapevine I heard this, that it was really hard to get onto the Japan project and they were very competitive. And so I thought, oh, I'd better put it as my first choice then. And otherwise I won't. Now, my first real choice was probably Vietnam or South Africa. So why was I putting Japan down? My bottom. Sliding but doors moments. Love it, them. You know, like my... <laughs> 
my Absolutely. 18 year old brain was not really computing this particularly effectively um and so probably I, the alcohol uh, well i no, i wasn't drinking that this is when i was right, still living enough. at home yeah um uh but um i yeah i put it down and i i put it down as my first choice and what i thought was going to happen what i thought the charity did was that they bring me in for a general kind of suitability interview could i manage living overseas for six months and then they would match me with a country that's what i sort of thought was going to happen what actually happened was i was interviewed for japan and then if i'd been suitable for going overseas but not japan they would have looked at my other countries and said where would you fit what they actually did was to say great you're going to japan and i went oh oh wait but i <laughs> okay um <laughs> and suddenly i found myself in suburban southern way outer suburban southern osaka um wow. which is like it's fascinating because it's neither i mean it's not the japan that you see on the telly right it's yeah. the japan that the vast majority of japanese people live in right is is the yeah. sort of little suburban i guess former towns or villages that are now just part of these giant cities like yeah. osaka and tokyo and you know they 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 sprawl um and they have just miles and miles and miles of these little houses and little blocks of apartments um uh with kind of rice fields in between and yeah, often quite a strong local identity local town town identity that's lasted traditionally through this sort of join up but um it's just suburbia yeah right and that's what that's what i got there i got there and we were talking about what what feels normal right everybody was saying to me you'll go to japan it'll be so different it'll be so strange how are you going to cope and i got there and I, oh cool it's suburbia right it's uh <laughs> yeah. whatever it is on the planet suburbia it's suburbia it's suburbia it's you know it's car dealerships and shopping malls and doctor surgeries and um it's you know just because they have all the electric wires up on poles rather than buried in the earth because of earthquakes there are yes. still electric wires <laughs> you know there may be <laughs> different things celebrated but there are still celebrations it's amazing I, yeah. I know from previous conversations that you mentioned that uh, one of the biggest differences was actually in that kind of connection between people, like actually mm. being part of a community or as an outsider mm. coming into that and how that looked. Tell us about that. Yeah. So I think, um, I mean, Japan has a very strong group identity and your group identity and group identities and your places in the group are very explicit in Japan in a way that I think in the UK we keep things quite fuzzy. We don't really like the idea of in-group and out-group mm. being very defined because we see that as elitist or cliquey or exclusionary. Um, but those groups still exist here. They're not, you know, they're not so uh, non-existent, right? Um, but because they because they are quite existent in in Japan and they're quite explicit there are often ways you can ways you can join like this is how you join and this is your kind of progression within the group so you see that but also um i you know i was an outsider literally the word for foreigner is outside person 
Um, <laughs> uh, couldn't be more clear, was, to be fair. It couldn't be more clear, right? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, and so I, I was a gaijin. I was an outside person. And I was the white foreigner in my town, the only one I knew of for many miles around me. Um, stood out like a sore thumb. Uh, and it, it became really clear to me that I was exciting and exotic to the people around me. I was sort of a, a, an interesting, almost like a novelty, I guess, wow. so in actually, people's it's kind lives. Of like a paradox is flipped on its side from you growing up being the only person, yeah, and that's a negative. Actually, to... suddenly you were the only person. And that's brilliant. <laughs> it's the real yeah. positive. Yeah, it was Amazing. it was like being like a minor celebrity or something. People would come up to me in the street. Wow. They would want um, uh, photographs, potentially. I had amazing invitations. Uh, you know, somebody, um, you know, please come to my house and teach my daughter English. Um, yeah. Please, <laughs> you know, let's, let's go on a, a trip somewhere. Because I wasn't just a foreigner there. I was a guest. Yeah. And Japan has an incredible hospitality uh, culture. I always remember um, delivering a talk at the University of Lincoln and some mm. Japanese students were there. And again, that same thing that they, they hadn't seen or heard anybody speaking openly about mental illness and mental health. Mm. So they kind of had their pictures taken with me. I, I, I kind of still maintain to this day they thought I was a fat Tony Robbins. <laughs> <laughs> but that's kind of what I'm going with. Um, but... How long were you there for in the end? How long did you stay in Japan for? And, and did you yeah. manage to kind of forge relationships and friendships and stuff? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, this is cool. this is the thing that really came through was, was for all that sort of perception of, you know, outside person and versus Japanese person or whatever. People are people. And that really came to me. And I, that's been really fundamental to how I see the world. People are people. Um, you know, my my I worked somewhere. I had it was set up with a work placement when I got to Japan. Um, and I was working actually in a uh, residential home for elderly, disabled elderly people who didn't have family who could look after them. So that was what I was doing day to day was kind of care work. Uh, I still have the bad back to prove it. Um, <laughs> I, I, but I got to know the, the other staff. I got to know the residents. Um, I, uh, you know, built friendships. I got to know people's kids. Um, I got to hear people's kind of gripes and they were exactly the same gripes that you always <laughs> hear. Why is my place on the rotor always the worst possible time? You know. What about uh, language? Did you did you go over speaking, being able to speak some Japanese or did you go? I, I, I went I went I went over there with about 10 words. Okay. Um and we were set up with a local woman who'd lived in America for a while who would come in once a month um, and translate to make sure that if there was any kind of um, serious issues that those wouldn't be left for too long and we could contact her if we we had her number if we really needed okay. her in the intervening time um, and we also had uh, a Japanese organization that we were in contact with to that was sort of the the, the outpost of the of the gap activities projects who'd okay. set yeah. this whole thing up so there was there was structure and I say we because I was actually originally sent over there with another English girl um, and she couldn't handle it. Wow. She really, she couldn't handle a lot of things about it. She had had a very close knit group of friends back home. She'd had a boyfriend yeah. back home. She was also taller, 
curvier and had a mass of beautiful red hair. And so she physically stood out more than I did. And when when we were, you know, in public together, she got all of the attention as the foreigner. And I sort of initially was less uh, visible, I guess. Um, and she found that combination of it's very different. I'm getting all this attention and people are staring at me. I'm, I'm away from my home. I'm away from my family. She was also younger than me. And you talked about like, did you choose to go to the other side of the earth? Cause it wasn't where you were living, you know, kind of, yeah, a little bit. She went to the other side of the earth and realized how much she loved home. Wow. Um, and she booked a flight home after a couple of weeks and went back. I think it's further proof of how subjective normal is because to yeah. you it was actually not too far a stretch from where you were before yeah. your kind of thoughts and stuff. And to her, it was it being was impossible. On a different planet. Yeah, Crazy. yeah. See, I know I could talk to you for ages, but I, I, it's going to be a really long episode. If you do. <laughs> <laughs> and the, the amount of rabbit holes we get in. So, bringing it back to some order, what's next for Martha Lawton? Uh, what is next? Apart from so, my house move. That's a, that's a oh, whole thing don't yeah. even talk about it. Don't even talk about it. By the time the episode <laughs> I mean, airs, I, I will either have moved or not moved, and I don't know yet which it's going to be. So, wow. It's um, kind of like um, uh, Schrodinger's cat thing going on yeah. before July. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, please, please, I will have moved, but um, it might not have Everything's happened. crossed for you. Thank you. I appreciate it. So what it. else? What's in the future? What's your plans? Um, what's your ambitions? So what's, what are my plans and ambitions? Um, I would love to keep talking about what's normal with people. Um, mm. I promise to be less rambly and rabbit hole-ish in a... <laughs> Genuinely, not at all. This has been one of the most powerful and impactful um, uh, podcast episodes we've had. Oh, the, the, your openness you. and, and your ability to really convey that emotion really shines through. So absolutely oh, no apology needed. Thank Don't you. make me tie you off. <laughs> <laughs> no apologies needed ever um bless you yeah. and then so, uh, so do that, more of that reach more audiences more that. Yeah. yeah that would be great um i have my podcast which comes out every other week um we have some in the bio. awesome guests talking about the psychology of money why is it that you don't do the things you intend to do with your finances and what can you do about it more to the point more to the point we do actually give you the advice to get around your emotional psychological quirks wherever we can um i will be so i'm developing a whole bunch of kind of stuff around the, the coaching and learning side but nice. all of that is still very much in development so kind of watch this space Exciting. and i have a blog which is marthalawton.com you can go over there and there's more stuff. So if you prefer to read as opposed to listening, or if you like both, get on there. Um, there is there is lots of my stuff on the internet. Absolutely. All the links to Martha's stuff is, as we put, is, is in the bio. Uh, so please do check her out. Please do connect. I'm sure she'll be happy to hear from you with any Love questions it. that you yes, have. Please. Please, um, please. I'm delighted to have brought Martha to you, my audience. Really excited to have her on the show today. And now you, can, you know absolutely why I'm so excited. <laughs> um, the question I ask everybody that comes yep. on the show is this. I am now the MC of the O2 Arena. <laughs> 20,000 people have paid Amazing. on harder money to come and hear you do your thing, to deliver okay. your talk. Yeah. I'm just about to introduce you to the stage and your walk-on uh -huh. music kicks in. That one track that motivates you, that lifts you, that gets your energy up. What would that walk-on music track be? It would be Six Shooter by Coyote Kisses, 
which is an absolute banger. Um, it's, <laughs> it really is. It's, yeah, it's great. It's a combination of like, uh, it's a dance track. It is a, it's an electronic track, but it's got this big um, kind of indie rock vibe, big, mm. big guitars, big bass line. Um, and yeah, I love it. It's, it's an amazing it- song. That actually is on my own personal playlist. Ah, amazing. I enjoyed when you first mentioned that to me a few months ago. Really, I really love that track. Yeah. So that track, along with every other track from our guests and our speakers, it's going to be on the playlist at the end of season two. So please stay tuned. It's going to be a banging playlist. Maybe I could like do a new, maybe like a now album, like a double vinyl or something. I'm going to get a double vinyl release of all this stuff. But for now, big thank you, Martha Lawton. Thank you. <laughs> An amazing guest. Uh, and, and I'm sure we'll have you back for season three if you would give your time to like, us. That'd be fantastic. Always, always. Amazing. So for Thank everybody you. else, please stay tuned. Uh, on episode 15, we have the amazing Carl Reader, uh, uh, somebody I've spoken alongside, shared a stage with, uh, author, speaker, influencer. Um, so stay tuned for that one. That's coming next Wednesday. Uh, but for now, that's me. Stay happy, stay well, and I will see you soon. Take care, guys. Cheers. Bye-bye. And that's a wrap. A big thank you for tuning in to today's show. Please stay tuned and hit subscribe for future episodes, bringing you amazing guests, sharing amazing content and amazing insights. Really excited to bring you these. The Forge Ahead Show is sponsored by NickElston.com. If you want to connect with me, you can find all the ways possible through the website. If you want to drop me a message, always great to hear from you. But in the meantime, if I don't catch you before, I'll see you at the next episode. And you take care, guys. Cheers now. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.